chapter 3 of James, verses 1 through 12. James 3, 1. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now if we put the bits into the horses' mouths so that they will obey us, we direct, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it... We bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives, or a vine produce figs? nor can salt water produce fresh. Well, obviously, this section of Scripture deals with the tongue, the use of the tongue, how we speak and what we say. He starts out by dealing with teachers, those who would stand in front of others, and instruct them in the truth of God, which is what I'm doing. And this verse is one who, a verse that I've thought about quite a bit just in relationship to what I've been doing for years. The subject of the tongue. James has already touched on this subject a number of times. If you remember from the past uh, times I've spoke, we've we've mentioned uh, verse 19. We looked at that just briefly where he says that uh, let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. So, slow to speak. He also brought it up in verse 26. He says, 
This is such an important area. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. So, a very uh, powerful verse here related to the tongue. If we don't bridle it, our religion is worthless. And then you see in verse 12, he says that we should so speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. So our speaking and our action. Uh, I've been brought up a number of times already in this letter. You know, our ability to to uh, speak as part of being made in the image of God. God is a speaking God. He's a communicating God. And uh, it's a wonderful gift, this gift of speech. But sadly, since the fall of mankind into sin, our communication is often more devilish than it is divine. The tongue can be used for great blessing, when controlled and energized by God, but it can be a terrible, destructive force when pride or selfish ambition are involved. Now, in this section we're looking at today, James deals primarily with the negative aspect of the use of the tongue. I intended to get through verse 12 today, but we won't make it. I found that out as I was working on the message. So uh, we'll get, hopefully, to verse 6. Actually, what we're dealing with today comes from the flow of what we've looked at in the past here, uh, especially the section just previous. You remember James was seeking to correct a perversion of the teaching of justification by faith, probably a perversion of what Paul was preaching at that time. He was concerned that people realize that authentic faith will always be accompanied by authenticating works. And this leads him to caution against too many people putting themselves in a position of teachers. Apparently there were people going around teaching things that were wrong related to this teaching of justification by faith. So, too many people putting themselves in the position of teachers. First of all, you must be concerned, if you're a teacher, you must be vitally concerned that what you say is right, not a perversion of God's truth. The fact is, people will make important life decisions based on what a teacher says, a preacher or a teacher. So, you better, you better be right in what you're talking about. Secondly, because you're making statements about how people should live, you must realize that you'll be accountable to live that way yourself. You see, what James is doing here, and this is what James does a lot in this book, is he's reflecting what he's learned from Christ, his brother, at least his half-brother. Reflecting here would be what uh, Jesus said in Matthew 7. By your standard of measure, it shall be measured to you. What you're saying to others, that's going to be a measure. 
of how things will be measured to you. And he goes on, remember in that section, Jesus goes on to talk about making sure that you deal with the log that's in your eye before you start dealing with the speck in your brother's eye. So the teacher has a solemn responsibility to teach what's true and to live up to what he teaches. We all, all of us, not just the teachers, but all of us are accountable for our words. But there is a sense in which God expects more from church leaders and holds them accountable for what they teach his people. If we don't practice what we preach or if we teach error, we will have what James says is a stricter, calls a stricter judgment. So no one should lightheartedly take this position without considering the tremendous responsibilities involved. I think this thought of a stricter judgment is based on the fact that the Bible teaches degrees of blessing and punishment. Knowledge and leadership bring greater responsibilities. Greater knowledge, greater position of leadership bring greater responsibility. This is what Jesus said in Luke 12, 48. He said, From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. You could think again of what Jesus said when he said, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to stumble, it is better for him that a heavy millstone be hung around his neck and that he be drowned in the depths of the sea. That should be a frightening verse for anyone who stands up to teach Christ's little ones. Now, it seems to me that the historical setting in which James was writing, he was dealing, you remember, he talked about uh, writing to the 12 tribes dispersed abroad, and he said those were Jewish Christians that had been scattered because of persecution. Well, it seems that the, some of these people in those various situations were inclined towards taking the position of a teacher. Perhaps they desired this position because a rabbi in a Jewish culture was held to be uh, uh, quite a position of, of honor and high esteem. Rabbi means teacher. Or perhaps James was dealing with the tendency of a large section of the early church, early church to want to speak during group meetings. We know that was the case because Paul had to deal with it a number of times. You remember in 1 Corinthians 14, 26, he says, talking about the gathering of the, the early Christians, What is the outcome then, brethren? When you assembly, each one has a song, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. You know, we have a little problem in that we tend to think that the meetings back then were like our meetings now. Uh, I think, actually, we'd be quite surprised if we, we could be transferred back into some of those first gatherings. You wouldn't find one of these. You wouldn't find no pulpit, no podium, no piano, 
what you'd find were people that were verbally participating a lot <laughs> in the meeting. They, they were quite dynamic and a little bit unstructured, you get the feeling. And that's why Paul had to write a number of times to kind of uh, try to impose some order without stifling spontaneity. Well, this may be partly the situation that James was dealing with, with the churches that he was writing to. Many voices of would-be teachers contending for a hearing. On top of that, it seems that some of these people must have been motivated by jealousy and selfish ambition, which he brings up down, and we didn't read this part, but in chapter 3, verse 14, but... If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. It goes on in verse 16. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. So some of these people must have had a problem in that area. Well, to all this, then, James says, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such you shall incur a stricter judgment. In verse 2, James acknowledges that we all stumble in many ways, and I think he's talking about everyone here, every, every believer, everyone in these assemblies, in our speech and in our actions. So we should be very cautious about taking a leadership position. And basically I think he's saying, remember... You are subject to judgment even more if you try to teach others because all of us have a propensity to sin in many ways. It's hard to avoid falls, especially in our speech. I, I couldn't uh, find this. I heard this somewhere, and so I, this is kind of a rough quote, and I think it was from Luther, but he said this, The tongue is in a wet place, so it slips easily. <laughs> James says we all stumble, and he even includes himself in this. We all stumble. Now, he's not taking this lightly. I mean, it's how we say, well, that's just a stumble. That's not the way he's presenting this. He's saying this is sin, and that's why he says there's going to be a stricter judgment. So... He includes himself in this, so we know that he's not saying that we have to be sinless in our speech before we can teach. That would disqualify everyone. But he is concerned that there be a, a substantial level of victory in our lives, in our speech, and maturity in our character for one who would teach. There should be a humble acknowledgement that we will all have to bridle our tongue to keep from sinning. I mean, we just, if we don't realize that, there's no reason, no, no place for us to get up in front of anyone else. We're all going to have to deal with this, and especially one who teaches. You're going to have to bridle your tongue to keep from sinning. The Apostle Peter, who actually had a little problem with his tongue, uh, early on anyway, said this, Whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. You must do that. 
It's like the tongue will do this unless you restrain it. So just realize it's got to be bridled and pulled in, reined in. Uh, We must restrain that natural tendency of the tongue. Control of the tongue is a mark of spiritual maturity in the Christian life. This is what James is saying here. He's saying, if we can reign in our tongue, we'll be able to deal with all the other areas of our life as well. See what he says there in verse 2, the second part? If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole tongue as well. You're complete, a mature, perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now, what James is doing here, he's switching over from just talking about teachers to talking about, to talking about all of us in general here uh, in terms of the use of our tongue. And he uses a number of images to bring home his point. He uses a horse's bridle, the rudder of a ship, a forest fire, the taming of animals, deadly poison, people being made in the image of God, a fountain, trees, and water. So he, he, in these few verses, uh, we won't get to all these today, but it just in these few verses he uses quite a few images and pictures to bring home his point. You know, someone might be tempted to think that James is making too big a deal out of the tongue. Do our words really have such a tremendous impact on our lives and the lives of others? Well, James uses his first three illustrations here to show that small things like a tongue can have a huge influence. He compares the tongue to the bit which controls the horse and the rudder that's used to steer a ship and a spark that causes a great forest fire. Just as a small thing like the bit that's put in a horse's mouth can change the direction of the horse. In fact, I brought one here. Just just for the children to think about here a little bit. That's a bit that goes, well, I'm not going to do it. (laughs) But that's not a very big thing. It might weigh a pound. But you can change the direction of the horse. I asked Travis about how much a horse weighs. He said, well, around 1,000 pounds probably. So here's a one-pound thing that you you can change. Big old, if I I couldn't bring the horse in either. (laughs) Big old horse. Just change its direction where it goes because of this little thing. So that's what James is saying. You've got something little that can make a big difference, but he's talking about your tongue, you see. Just as a small bit determines the direction of a large horse, so the tongue can determine the direction and even the destiny of an individual. If the tongue is not restrained, the rest of the body will probably not be controlled or disciplined either. On the other hand, if we, by the grace of God, can control our tongue, we can direct our whole body into its proper course. 
By body, when James uses the word body here, I think he's actually thinking about our entire personality. He's not just talking about the physical body. He's talking about our entire personality. Uh, Phillips, uh, in, his trans, in his paraphrase of this verse, says if a person can control his tongue, he can control every other part of his personality. So I think that kind of catches the meaning here of what James is saying. This small thing, the tongue, can have a huge influence in our lives and the lives of others. If we can control our speech, it is evidence that we have self-control, which is part of the fruit of the Spirit. You might look at it this way. It's like the tongue is a little window into the soul. The things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. That's what defiles a man, Jesus said. And so it's like by listening to the words of a person, you have a little window into their heart. One writer said that perhaps the surest test of self-discipline is whether or not you and I can control our tongues. Though it's small like the horse's bit or like the ship's rudder, it can do great harm. The tongue can do great harm if left uncontrolled. Just like a great forest fire can be started from a little spark, the tongue can do great damage. Things like cutting remarks made to your spouse or angry words of impatience directed towards your child or flattery or boasting, or gossip, or slander, unkind words, criticism, coarse jokes, vulgarity, ethnic and racial slurs, lies, rumors, sarcasm. These are just a few of the things we're talking about here when we're talking about the way our words can damage and destroy. Some of us right here today are still being affected by words someone said to us years ago. And sadly, some of the things we said in the past may still be affecting others in adverse ways. There are things that I wish I'd never said. And there are things which were said to me I wish I'd never heard. James says, Behold, how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. Again, for the children, the example... You know, your parents probably have said something to you about these things. They've probably said something like, don't play with matches. Why would they say that? That's just a little thing. Don't play with that little thing. Why not? Because it can do great harm, right? I could take this out 
to the lake, out to the Thousand Hills. And this little thing could start a forest fire. Just this little thing. Well, James is saying a careless word, an unkind word, can start a flaming problem in another person's life. Murder, adultery, divorce, wars, suicide, ruined relationships, church splits, and a thousand other sorrows and sadnesses have come because of the unbridled tongue. This is what James is saying in verse 6. He says, And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. It's a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life. Our whole life can be determined. And all of the history of mankind sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. Our lives, the lives of our loved ones, the lives of every man, woman, and child on this planet may be harmed or even destroyed by the evil that comes forth from an unrestrained tongue. He says it's a very world of iniquity setting on fire the whole course of our life. Do we really believe this? This is the word of God. This is what James is saying. Do we we believe that our speech can actually be this sinful? Well, I think the more we see of spiritual reality the more we'll see that he's right in what he's saying. When Isaiah got a glimpse of the glory of God, you remember there in Isaiah chapter 6, he gets a glimpse of his glory. sees him high, has a vision of God, high and lifted up. And the angels, the seraphim, are crying to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Well, when Isaiah got a little glimpse of that reality, the reality of God, what happened? Well, this is what he says. Woe is me, for I'm ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the king the Lord of hosts. When he saw something of the reality of who God is, he saw something of the reality of what his speech was like. I'm a man of unclean lips, he says. Uh, I don't often quote the living Bible, but I think it expresses in contemporary language what Isaiah realized. Here's Here's the living Bible's translation of that verse. I am a foul-mouthed sinner, a member of a sinful, foul-mouthed race. 
You see, we've become so desensitized to the defiling and destructive nature of ungodly speech because it surrounds us all the time. It takes a revelation of God, you see. It takes a revelation of God to show us how unholy our tongue can be. Well, James says, if we see things rightly, we'd see that the uncontrolled tongue is actually set on fire by hell. Think of this. Just a few words, just a few deceptive words from Satan plunged this world into sin and sorrow and death and destruction. Just a, there's not many words there that Satan said. It didn't take much. And even now, our speech is either inspired by hell or by heaven. If the tongue is unbridled, untamed, and unmanaged, something of its hellish nature, the tongue's hellish nature, will most likely come forth. The ungodly tongue... The unbridled tongue, James says, is set on fire by hell. I want to take a little time on that because this is a, an interesting word here. This word for hell is Gehenna. And it's significant that that word, this Greek word, is only used in the, in the Bible one time apart from the words of Jesus. Now, Jesus used it a lot, but it's only used one other time, and that's right here. Again, you have, an, you have this amazing thing of James's reliance upon his brother's teaching. No other New Testament writer uses this word, Gehenna. Jesus used it 11 times. So I want to briefly examine this word because I think it will help us feel some of the force of what James intended by saying that our tongue is set on fire by hell. The name Gehenna reflects an Old Testament phrase which means the valley of the sons or the valley of Hinnom or the valley of the sons of Hinnom. It was an area south of Jerusalem, and it had a bad history. Um, do any of you have uh, maps in the back of your Bible? I might just check here. My, my Bible has maps in the back, and one of them is a map of Jerusalem. How many of you have maps in your Bible? Well, if the ne person next to you doesn't, let them look on your map. And if you have a map of Jerusalem, that is, <clears throat> you'll see that there, there's a city and there are walls around the city. And then just to the bottom, to the south, the lower end, <clears throat> if your map is like mine, you'll see there's a Valley of Hinnom. Any of, any of you have that? Valley of Hinnom? Uh, Hinnom Valley, all right. All right, that's, where, that's the area we're talking about. 
Now, why is that important? Well, this was the place, back when the Israelites came in and took the land, it was one of the places, at least, where the Canaanite and Phoenician people offered sacrifices to their god, Molech. And Molech was worshipped by child sacrifices. That was a, they, the phrase in the Bible is often called making your sons and daughters pass through the fire. That's the way it's presented in the Bible. But what it was was offering your, your children as a sacrifice to this god Moloch or Molech. Now this evil practice, we're going to go back in the Old Testament here a little bit. This evil practice was forbidden to the Jews as they entered the land. Turn back to Leviticus chapter 18. <clears throat> Leviticus 18:21 says this. Neither shall you give any of your offspring to offer them to Molech, nor shall you profane the name of your, your God, I am the Lord. If you turn over then to chapter 20, verse 2, you shall also say to the sons of Israel, any man from the sons of Israel or from the aliens sojourning in Israel, who gives any of his offspring to Molech shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. I will also set my face against that man and cut him off from among his people because he has given some of his offspring to Molech so as to defile my sanctuary and to profane my holy name. Well, uh, we'll stop there. That's, that was just their instruction as they were entering the land. Don't do these terrible, terrible things that are uh, done related to this false god, Molech. But the sad, one of the sad things we're going to learn here is that when the Jews entered the land, they started doing some of this, at least under their wicked rulers like Ahaz and Manasseh. Uh, let's turn to... Second Chronicles 28. 2 Chronicles 28. Verse 3. This is talking about Ahaz. It says, Moreover, he burned incense... In the valley of Ben-Hinnom, Ben is a word for son, Ben-Hinnom, the sons of Hinnom. That's this valley we're talking about, valley of Hinnom. And burned his sons in fire according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had driven out before the sons of Israel. So here was this wicked king Ahaz in this valley of Ben-Hinnom. Offering his sons. And then if you turn over to 33, 2 Chronicles 33, verse 6. This is Manasseh. 
another one of the wicked, evil kings. Uh, verse 6. And he made his sons pass through the fire in the b- valley of Ben-Hinnom. And he practiced witchcraft, used divination, practiced sorcery, and dealt with mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. So you have God's people falling into these practices, these terrible things. The prophets spoke out against this evil practice that had been taken up by the Jewish people. For instance, in Jeremiah... He said that this place, this valley, would become a place of judgment and punishment because of what his people were doing there. Uh, Let's look at Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah 7 and verse 30. For the sons of Judah have done that which is evil in my sight, declares the Lord. They have set their detestable things in the house which is called by my name to defile it. And they have built the high places of Topheth, which was in the valley of the sons of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, and it did not come into my mind. He said, I wouldn't even think of such a thing as this. Uh, Verse 32. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no longer be called Topheth, which we'll find out here in a minute has to do, it means a place of burning and abhorrence. And no longer, no more be called Topheth, or the valley of the sons of Hinnom, but the valley of the slaughter, valley of the slaughter, for they will bury in Topheth because there is no other place. And the dead bodies of this people will be food for the birds of the sky and for the beasts of the earth, and no one will frighten them away. What's he saying? He's saying, because of what you're doing here, I'm going to bring judgment upon you and your, your body, your body, the bodies of the people, the Jewish people are going to be piled up in this area because of the evil that you've done by committing this wickedness. In other words, the place of their wickedness will become the place of their punishment. Now, because of Jeremiah prophesying against this, there were some reforms that were were made. Uh, King Josiah did some... uh, movement in the right direction on this. Let's turn to 2 Kings chapter 23. 2 Kings. And uh, verse 10. 2 Kings 23, verse 10. He, that is King Josiah, he also defiled Topheth. That's, and if you look, if you have a little marginal note there, it says that 
It means a place of burning. Well, it had been a place of burning children, sacrificed to this god Molech. He defiled Topheth, which is in the valley of the sons of Hinnom, that no man might make his son or his daughter pass through the fire for Molech. In other words, he was getting rid of this stuff. He was defiling it, tearing it down, destroying these places of worship to Molech. So those are some background things related to this valley of Hinnom or the sons of Hinnom, what went on there. First of all, child sacrifice to this evil false god Molech. Then God's people getting into this, God's professing people getting into this. And then God bringing judgment upon them and having their bodies being piled up in this area uh, because of their wickedness. So that's the background. In the time of Jesus, the Jews were so appalled by their ancestors' participation in the pagan worship of child sacrifice that they turned this area into the garbage dump for Jerusalem. There's a place where they put all their the garbage, and they, they burned it there. It was a stinking, terrible place. And uh, some of the metaphors for judgment that Jesus uses, the fire, the smoke, the worm, come from this detestable garbage dump, this valley of Hinnom, Gehenna. It was a place that represented defilement, destruction, decay, and death. And Jesus then uses it as a picture of the place of the ultimate condemnation and punishment for the wicked. It's a place, he says, of eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels and those who would not turn to Christ in repentance and faith. So I say all that. I'm just trying to give you a picture here of this word Gehenna that that James uses. He's saying, I think, as forcefully as he can, that our words are not little unimportant things. If our tongue is not under the control of heaven, it will be like a fire fed by hell, bringing defilement, destruction, decay, and death. Not only in the lives of others, but in our own lives as well. That's what Jesus was teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. You remember when he was dealing with the commandment on murder? He includes under this heading of thou shalt not murder, he says, uh, if you have mean-spirited words that come out of your mouth, you're guilty enough to go into the hell of fire, Gehenna. Let's look at it. Matthew chapter 5. Verse 21. You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder, 
and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court, and whoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court, and whoever shall say, You fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. That's the word Gehenna. The Gehenna of fire, he says. So James is taking these, these clues from Christ as to how important our words can be and how destructive our words can be. We are responsible for our words. We're accountable for what we say and we will be judged by them. Again, Jesus put it this way. He said this in Matthew 12, 36 through 37. And I say to you that every careless, which is like a worthless, reckless, useless, any careless word, every careless word that man shall speak, they shall render account for on the day of judgment. For by your words you shall be justified, and by your words you shall be condemned. These are such powerful things that Jesus and James are saying here related to this thing that we take so lightly. Proverbs says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. So I want to start bringing this to a close. We've been saying throughout our studies here in James that the book is really about authentic faith. The main point this morning is that real, authentic faith in Christ will change the way you speak. He'll be the one who's the captain of the ship who turns the rudder where he desires. And he'll be the one who has the reins of the tongue. One commentator put it this way, Just as a horse needs a rider holding the reins, and a ship needs a pilot at the rudder, so your tongue needs a master, and God is the only one who can do the job. You're not going to be able to handle it yourself. That's why David said, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the doors of my lips. David realized, if, I, if this is going to get taken care of, God's going to have to do it. This is bigger than me. Set a guard, O Lord, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the doors of my lips. As we shall see next time, Lord willing, no one can tame the tongue. James says, you can't do it. doesn't mean it can't be done. It just means you can't do it. No one can tame the tongue. It takes a miraculous work of God to sanctify our speech. But, and I don't, this has been pretty negative. It does take a miraculous work, work of God to sanctify our speech. But God does do this for his people. In, close, in closing, I'd like us to turn to Isaiah that I made reference to before. When he saw the Lord high and lifted up, he realized that he was a man.
of unclean lips and living amongst a people of unclean lips. But this is what happened. Isaiah chapter 6. Well, why don't we just go back to verse 5. Then I said, you all with me here, Isaiah 6, 5. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. It takes God to clean us up in this area. But he, he does do that for his people. Sins of the tongue are offense are offenses against the law of love, the law of liberty, and the law of Christ. And we daily need the fire of God's Spirit to sanctify our speech so that we will say loving and true and right and good things. We need that burning coal from the altar to touch our mouth so that we might have Christ-like speech. I quoted uh, David a little bit ago. He also said this, May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. That should be our prayer as we think about this subject of the tongue. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, be acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord God, my rock and my redeemer. Well, we'll, Lord willing, go on on this subject of the tongue next time. We'll, uh,